We're going to pick up where we left off last week, and I'm just going to show this slide one more time. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there because everybody's been here. We've talked about this um, fairly extensively, but just, just keep these things in the back of your mind as we're going through this because I'm not trying to just sell an idea here or a concept, but there are things that concern me uh, about the interpretations we have when it comes to eschatology, and mainly when you get into the amillennial and the postmillennial thing, because we're making Scripture do things that Scripture was never intended to do. Now, this does not mean these people are heretics. That does not mean these people are not born-again saved people. It's just when we start getting in here, when we start making things allegorical instead of literal, then we start having some troubles because where do you draw the line? There are things that are clearly allegorical, but there are things that are clearly not. And when it comes to the thousand-year reign of Christ, there's just no way to take it. And as I told you, I've never, i met one guy in all my life that came to the amillennial conclusion from strictly from studying scripture. Every other person, it's always because their church taught it, their seminary taught it, whatever, that's what they believe and that's the end of it. And the problem we have here is we stop seeking truth. We, uh, we, 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 what we seek are things that confirm what we already believe. And so we've got to be careful with that kind of stuff. And I know I've shown this before, but I'll show it again. Acts 17.11, bottom line is test everything. Against scripture. We've got pizza up there, big guy, and so did the cooler. Up yourself. So, anyway, uh, just as a recap, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 here. This is where we left off last week. So, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, him to show his service, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it with his angel to his servant John. Remember, shortly is not a quick amount of time. It means when it starts, it goes fast and signifies. It's going to be signs of things coming to be. The bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads those, uh, who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. From the seven spirits who were before us, from, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins and his own blood. And has made us kings and priests through his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even though they pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, because of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom, and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So that is where we left off, okay? We got through the introduction part, which is the first three verses. The next part after that is kind of the salutation. You see it right to this, these churches. How are you? I'm John, and so on and so forth. But from here, we're going to get into the vision of the risen Christ, the 12 through 18. Now, I'm planning to finish this up today. Uh, this chapter, that doesn't mean it's going to happen. I was telling Isaac, you know, the more I put together on this, the longer it just got. And we are not going to rush it. I'm not going to talk fast. If we don't get through it all today, we'll get through it next week, okay? If I'm going too fast, please somebody holler at me. But remember, everything we're doing is picking up where we left off. So he just heard the voice of the trumpet, all right? Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, 
And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about his chest with a gold band. Now remember, he turned. The sound was behind him. It was as of a trumpet. Okay? So he physically turns around to see what is going on. He's in the spirit, but his physical body is still functioning. So what does he do? He turns to see the voice. Now here's the question. How does one see a voice? Right? You don't see a voice, you hear a voice, right? Mm -hmm. This is the word voice there comes from the Greek word, you're going to find this hard to believe, phone. Phone. P-H-O-N-E. Phone. Like telephone. That's the Greek word. I don't know if that has a connection to why Brand Bell decided that's what you call it. I don't know. But it's from that word phone. But the voice was behind This is just enigmatic. I have watched people try to come up with all sorts of stuff. There are two things that are possibly going on. Remember the word of the Lord? And we talked about this when we're going through the series we've been in on Sunday morning. That Jesus was the Word, and the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and all of that. And then you see the Word of the Lord came to him, and he put his hand on him, or did things like that in the Old Testament. This could be something like that. I don't think that's as accurate as can be. But the uh, to see the voice is just a saying. He's turning around to see who it is, is what he's trying to get across here. So, But remember, the voice is behind him. He turns around. The Greek language, when, it, when you look at this and you put all of this together, makes it sound as if this is a voice that John recognized. And he's not expecting. Remember, he wasn't expecting. So what does he, he turns and what does he see? He sees seven golden lampstands. He sees one like the Son of Man in the midst of the lampstand. This person had a garment that was down to his feet, and he had this golden band around his chest. Now, the seven golden lampstands, we're going to talk about in depth in verse 20, because in verse 20, it tells us what those are. It's the seven churches, okay? So we're not going to spend a lot of time here on that. We're going to talk about that there. But one, like the Son of Man. Now, who is the Son of Man? Jesus, right? There's several Old Testament passages that tell us this. I was watching in the night visions in Daniel 7, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man we know is talking about Jesus because in Matthew 9, 6, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power for on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Jesus tells us who the Son of Man. That's him. He, this isn't the only one. There's several of them, but it goes back. Now, here's the thing that I want you to pick up on, okay? Daniel 7, there's two people. One like the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. They are not the same person. This is a courtroom theme, okay? This is the context of it. And we'll talk about that more later, but the Ancient of Days was very likely the Father, okay? And the only reason I'm, I'm hammering on that a little bit is because it's some of the commentaries that I read, they you're going to see the descriptions of the Son of Man here in a moment are very similar to the descriptions of the Ancient of Days. And so they're saying this is one and the same. And it's very clearly not from context, okay? But be that as it may. So we know the Son of Man is Jesus, right? So what I do when I'm doing stuff and I'm studying this, guys, and you can do this or not do this, it's up to you. But I start making notes. What is titles of Jesus? The first and the last, beginning and the end. The one who was, which is, and which is to come. Son of Man. I start writing these titles down because later it doesn't just, it tells us then, 
but it doesn't describe it. So now we can start putting the pieces together who's talking or about whom because all these different titles are important. So the description that he gives here of Jesus is that he had a garment that went down to his toes or down to his feet. Now, this garment should make you think of something. Okay? Any idea what this garment was? High priest. Exodus 28.4. And these are the garments which they shall make. A breastplate and ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash, so that they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brothers, and his sons, that they may minister me as a priest. Now this doesn't go into all the detail of it, but you get the idea. There was something unique. Aaron was the high priest. His sons were the priests. And the priests were a certain garment, and the high priests were an even more unique garment. Okay? Oh, that's her. Sorry. Uh, and so that is very likely. Now, kings wore garments too. But there's something that's going to these kings that they meant. Now, what's interesting here, and this is what, when you start getting into the original language, you start picking up on some of these different trends, I should say. Okay? First of all, it's not he's not just a priest. Jesus is our high priest, right? We'll look at that in a minute. But this word clothed, he was clothed in a garment down to his feet. It comes from the Greek word enduo, E-N-D-U-O. Okay? It's the act of putting on clothes or one who is dressed in a garment. Not really in-depth, not overly exciting, until you see another place in which this word is used. And that is in Luke 24 and verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Clothed and endued are the same word. Now think about that for me. When he makes the promise of the Holy Spirit, he is saying that this is a garment. The Holy Spirit is this. You are clothed. You are covered in him. It's not removable. It's interesting that those are the same words. Okay? Now, look at this verse again. Because if you take this a step farther, the Greek tense that's used here in verse 13 of this particular garment was conferred upon Christ. In other words, it was put upon him, but it's never removed. It's a once and for all thing. Now, as you said, this is the garment of the high priest. Now, all through the book of Hebrews, do you see this? Hebrews 3.1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, in case you didn't know who the great high priest was, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Okay? Hebrews 5, verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. One more, I promise. Hebrews 7, 23. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he because, has an unchangeable priesthood. He, uh, because he continues forever, he has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, I want to make sure I keep up with you guys. Therefore, he is also able to save the uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, 
harmless, undefiled, separate from sinner, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests who offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. So in case there's any controversy on who this high priest is, it's Jesus. But we've got to put that in terms of what was going on with the high priest. First, the high priest interceded for the nation of Israel, right? All the priests interceded for the people individually. They would bring their sacrifice. The sacrifice was made. The individual would keep their hands upon that sacrifice to, to make a connection with the animal. And then the priest would go about their duty, depending on the burnt offering, a sin offering, a thank offering, and all the different things. We've talked about all those different things. But the high priest, one time a year, would go in there. He would first have to make atonement for his own sins. Then he'd have to make atonement for the sins of the nation. And he would go through this rigor more. He would go into the holy place. He would take the incense from the, the table of incense. And he would walk into the most holy place. And he would pour the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat, which is the throne of God. That was the Ark of the Covenant. But what is he doing? He's interceding on behalf of the nation of Israel. Now, Jesus here has taken his place forever, never again. He doesn't need anybody else because he has risen from the dead. And not only that, he didn't have to sacrifice for himself as the high priest did because he was perfect and holy and blameless. So he was the perfect offerer of that sacrifice, but he was also the perfect offering because he didn't use the blood of, of goats and lambs and stuff like that. He used his own blood because it was the perfect sacrifice. And we know that that's what they were waiting on because John the Baptist tells us when Jesus shows up on the scene, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb gets a name. For the first time, we know who it is. The Lamb is on the planet. And he's ready to go. And so Jesus is the high priest forever. So what is he doing? He's sitting at the right hand of God. He is interceding on our behalf. He is every day. When we give our life to Christ, he's standing there for us with the Father. And the Father sees us through the blood of Christ because of that. This is powerful. If you don't know your Old Testament, this is a cute saying. When you start putting it together and realize how in-depth this really is, it's extremely powerful. And it makes you very thankful for what the Lord did. The last part of this is you got the garment down at feet. And I'll, I'll point this out now, but we'll talk about it later. Is that the one thing you'll notice is that when they went into the holy place and the holy of holy, they did not wear shoes. In fact, the priestly garbs never once mentions footwear. Now, we don't know if they were barefoot all the time. I wouldn't think so. Sacrificing animals, I would think one of them big peppers would step on your toes. But, you know, maybe they did. I don't know. But the last part, girded about the chest with a golden band. A lot of people mistake this as the high priest. Remember, the high priest would wear this, this I don't know what you call it. It looked like a flavor flayed, you know, golden clock. You guys don't know 90s rap? Come on. Flavor flayed. Flavor, never mind. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> But he would wear these things, and it would have 12 jewels in it. One represent each. You guys really don't know who Flavor Flav is? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, you've not missed it. I'm surprised you know. Any, any help? Yes, she knows. Speak up. Don't let me throw it away. Thank you. Okay. Uh, when we get done, I'll show you a picture of Flavor Flav, just so you know, because it'll solve this. But anyway, the high priest always wore this thing, this thing around his neck, and it hung there. Now, that's not what that says, okay? 
she's girded about the chest with a golden band. Now, this isn't a belt, because where do you wear a belt? Around your waist, not around your chest. So it was common, the priests would often wear a belt around their waist, because why? They wore these long robes and things like that. In fact, everybody kind of did. They would wear these, these, uh, these belts and stuff to hold their garment together. And, you know, we're thankful for that. Our robes today have that. You know, we don't need any, uh, any accidents going on. But, again, that's not what they're talking about. It's not around the waist. It is around his chest. Now, the Greek here, when this talks about this thing, is a very wide belt. Narrow belt. Right wide. We're talking probably 6 to 12 inches even. Very wide. So this was obviously less functional as much as it, it's symbolic. It had a meaning to this. Now, here's the thing. In the East, where we're talking about, it was customary for kings. They would wear these very large belts. They'd be made of gold, and they would wear them around the chest. Okay? These things were impossible to miss. They were gaudy, just like Flavor Flake's clock. You can't miss it. Okay? So I'm showing everybody pictures. If you don't, you have to see it. But what, what this allowed, remember, kings, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance, right? We're teaching about Ezra right now. Or not Ezra, Esther, sorry. Esther on Sunday morning, and you're going to see all the nuances of how Esther has to come to the king and things like that. There's all of these things, but one of the things is with the king, kings like to make entrances. They love attention. And so by wearing this around the chest, it would allow that robe to sash more. And so it would be more noticeable. But of course, you've got this big gaudy thing. Now, kingdoms that weren't quite as wealthy would wear smaller braided ones if it's braided with gold. But I mean, if they were like the Persian kingdoms and stuff like that, these things were massive. So think of a WWF belt. Like, dude, think of that's That is more on tune to what it is. Yeah, I know the rest of us wouldn't. But this was the marker of the king. That's how you know. When you saw that, they were the only ones that had that. Now think about that for a moment, okay? Putting all of this stuff together. Ooh, that was close, okay? So, the Son of Man gets his title while he's on the earth. He tells us who the Son of Man is. When Jesus was on the earth, he was operating in a specific office. It was the office of a prophet, right? Okay? But, when he made the sacrifice, what did he step into a new role? The high priest, right? And wearing this golden band, he's showing himself as, as a, another office, a king. Okay? So, you've got the prophet, the priest, and the king there. You guys see how that works? Now I'm taking a step further with this because remember, we're in the book of Revelation. Write down the things that uh, were, the things that are, and the things that will be. He was on the earth as a prophet. He's no longer a prophet. He was a literal mouthpiece of God. But he's not a prophet today like we would think of. He's continuing to be the highest priest of things that are, and he is going to be the king of kings. Right now, he'd be considered the prince. But when he sets up his kingdom, he's the king, the things which are to come. You guys see how that all works and interconnects? Okay. Give me a second to write all that down. Any questions so far? Everybody doing good? Am I going too fast? A couple of the old translations uh, refer to that as a golden girdle. Yeah. Which uh, makes it sound wider just mm -hmm. because of yep. what you think of as a, a truss or yep. a girdle type thing. I think the old King James says girdle. Old King James does, and the American Standard does Yeah, yeah. So, and that makes it a lot easier to understand. You know, when you see a girdle, you're not thinking a belt. You're thinking something else. Yeah. Well, I've got in mind, it says Josephus tells us the priests were girded about the breast, not the loins. We see him as a great high priest, is around the loins. 
That's what you'll see this. Yeah, Steve, but it was a regular belt. It wasn't this massive one. That's the difference. So, um, but yeah, they would wear it around there. They would have that breastplate. That's usually what most people assume that that is. Is the breastplate. So, uh, let's jump into verse fourteen. His head and hair were like white, like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, if then refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Now. I don't know if you've seen artists' renditions of these things, but they're creepy. Like, they're weird. And it goes on later about the sword coming out of his mouth. I mean, it looks like an X-Men, like laser beams coming out of his eyeballs and stuff like that. Now, I'll point this out, but I think we're all smart enough to pick this, pick this up. His head and hair were white, like wool. Okay? His eyes, like a flame of fire. They weren't literally flames. It wasn't literally like wool. It, these are similes. The figure of speech. His feet weren't brass. They were as brass. Like brass. You know, simile. Making a connection here. Now, we're going to go back to Daniel chapter 7 here because this is where a lot of this kind of stuff comes from. And this is why I kind of hammered on that earlier. We're going to read a little bit further. I'm going to read it over here so I can keep up with you guys. I watched till the thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, same thing, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. So you see a connection there, making this just a similar statement. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, you'll see there's a lot of connections there, right? A lot of um, similar usage. And that, when you get into these commentaries, a lot of these guys are saying, you see, the ancients of day was the Son of Man. But that makes no sense. Because one like the Son of Man, he came to the ancient of days. It's schizophrenic. It's like he's talking to a mirror or something. I mean, it just, it doesn't work. The Ancient of Days, in the courts of heaven, talking about this, there is a um, divine council thing that's going on here with the angels involved and all of that. It's a big undergirding picture, and if we get off on that, we'll be here for the next two or three weeks. But basically, imagine, if you will, the courts of heaven and the angels around. These are the ten thousands and all of that. They are part of that. And here it is, the Son of Man is being brought. But you look at the things, it's this timeline of eschatological stuff, okay? Now, we're not going to get into the talking horn and all of that, but you see the kingdom coming to him, all of these different things, things that you see used prophetically in other places that Daniel agrees with here, okay, or, or, or picks up on. In fact, I didn't lose anybody there, did I? Okay. Now, let me read you another one. Are you okay? Okay, it's fine. You can stop me anytime. Matthew 28. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, 
For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone of the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. Now, again, where we see the angel, you see this white, this countenance is, is like lightning, his clothing as white as snow. Here's the thing that we need to understand. John is not referring to a color, but it's this brilliance of light. It's this brightness, okay? We think white, we think old gray hair. That's not what's happening. It's this exuding uh, uh, light coming from them. You see that in other places. Daniel 7 is describing the ancient days in this same language. There's no, there'd be no doubt that Jesus would follow that same pattern. Then in Daniel 10, chapter 6, his body was like a barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. So you got eyes like fire. You see that. What is that talking about? Fire burns things up. Fire also purifies. And you see that in chapter 10 of Daniel because what is it? Judgment. All of this is dealing with judgment and bringing judgment upon that. His feet like fine brass. Now what is the thing with brass? Brass and bronze are often used interchangeably in scripture. But how they're not used interchangeably is that they are, it's a symbol of judgment. Of purification. They're cleansing. Okay. I said the Levitical priesthood, they did not wear shoes when they went in. So this is the feet of judgment. There's no description of any foot covering or anything like that. But you think back to all the descriptions in the Torah, in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. I mean, it's down to the type of fabric, the color, something. So you probably had thread count in there for, for Pete's sake, you know. Uh, you had to make it on a singer sewing machine. That was the only way it didn't count. You know, I mean, it's intensely, but it never once mentions footwear. We see it in the pictures all the time. But there's nothing there that would guarantee that. And so the thing to, when you're putting these connections together is that any time that they were on holy ground, what were they required to do? Had to remove their shoes, right? You see that with Moses as well as several others through time. What made the ground holy? The presence of God, okay? Because in their mind, in the, the Israelite mind, is that shoes carried the contamination of the world on it. And so they would uh, remove them whenever they would enter the holy place. Now, this portrays Christ as one who is completely pure and from the contamination of the world. This brass is, is this purification. What's interesting is in this place, okay, when we see the word brass in Revelation, is what I'm talking about, okay, there's only two times this is used in the New Testament. This is the word. It's used here. It's used in Revelation 2, uh, verse 18. Chocolibanan. If you can pronounce that better, I'll let you because I don't have a clue, but it comes from two words, chocolates which is bronze or brass, and limonis, which is the frankincense incense tree and the gum derived from it. Okay? So basically what this is saying when you put these together is that it is this, um, it's frankincense, but it had this bronze hue to it, this color and all of that. Now, as I said, bronze is always associated with judgment and cleansing. Think about what was the altar made out of in the tabernacle? Bronze. You had the brazen labor, purification, which is the sacrifice. You see it all in Numbers 21 with the, the brazen serpent. It was judgment bought upon. Jesus said that I am that serpent, just like he was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be. So you see all of these things going on. But frankincense was burned as the incense in the tabernacle and the temple both by the priest. This is an association with the priesthood. Now think back for a moment. When the Magi came to Jesus, they brought three gifts. Remember what they were. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, 
is talking about Jesus' kingship. It's a gift that you give to a king. Frankincense is a gift that you give to a priest because they use it. Now they did not, frankincense is not brought, is not in this area. It had to be brought in and they would use over 700 pounds a year. These are, like it, a little goes a long way they're going to use a 700 pounds. It was extremely expensive because of that. So you've got the priesthood associated with that. Myrrh is about Jesus' sacrifice, his death. Myrrh is what they used to embalm bodies. So you see the frankincense attached to his feet, this feet of brass, the bronze, whatever. It's this judgment and cleansing. And again, remember, what is Revelation doing? It is about the end times, the judgment that's coming on the world. So you're seeing all of these layers here connecting to Jesus, okay? Now, it says his voice as the sound of many waters, voice like waters, okay? Now, there's several places that you see an example of this. Ezekiel 1, verse 24. When they went, I heard the noise of their wings like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty. You see, the many waters like the voice of the Almighty. A tumult, like the noise of an army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. There's another one, Ezekiel 43. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Now, why am I showing you guys this? Because these analogies always, they explain themselves, okay? This is a very loud voice. Isaiah talks about how he's got a still, small voice. This is the opposite of that. It's a booming sound. You see it with Moses on the mountain where the, the, the law is being given, okay? This is a loud voice. So this is not something that is small. Everybody doing good? Okay. Let's go on to verse 16. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its, its strength. Now, I said we're going to talk about the stars here, uh, or the, the, the lampstands in verse 20. We're going to talk about the stars in verse 20 as well. But the stars said that they are the seven angels, it says in verse 20. I'll be interested to see what some of the older uh, stuff that you got there, Vicky, might tra translate that word angels, but we'll get there. When we get there. But remember, every everything written here has to make sense in the first century. Because this is written to somebody. This is written to those seven churches specifically. It has to make sense in the world they live in. Because we come up with all these conjectures about these different things, right? So, in order for it to make sense in the first century, then these you're going to see that these seven letters speak specifically to these churches at that time. There's no difference between those letters that are coming up in the next chapter as well as what's happening right here. No symbolism is accidental. It's all my plan. Now, there's historical evidence that the seven stars in the right hand of Christ was an image that is taken directly from the worship of Domitian. Remember, Domitian is the guy that put John on the island of Patmos. He was the guy that was the ruler. Okay, He basically goes nuts and demands that people worship him right now. Now, back then, the Roman rulers would be deified after their death. It was kind of common practice, and they would set up shrines to them, sometimes temples, things like that. Domitian started good, but kind of went nuts and started demanding that everybody bow to him and worship him and all these other things while he was still alive. He claimed that his whole family was descended from the gods, that he was a direct descendant, and that he was the son of Jupiter. Okay? which is the Greek name, the Roman name for Jupiter is Zeus. That's something you're probably more familiar with. 
So he is obsessed with this idea. He's trying to sell everybody the idea that his family comes from this lineage, and he wants them to worship him. So what he does is he orders this massive restoration project where they enlarge the Temple of Jupiter. It's huge. Okay? He pressures the Senate to name him Dominus et Deus, which means Domitian was Lord and God. They take a vote, they approve it. They really didn't have a choice, because if they didn't do what he wanted, he'd kill them. Right? Okay. So, now, because of that, he wasn't just a descendant of the gods. He is one of them. He is a god. And so they create all these different tribes. They build temples to him, all of that. Most of the times, uh, as I said, they wouldn't be worshipped until after they died. That's the reality. Now remember, he's the reason that John is on the island. And according to Josephus and Herodotus and some of the other guys, the reason John's there is because they he didn't he refused to go into those temples and burn incense and worship Domitian, you know. So that makes sense. But I'm going to show you a coin here. Okay, this is from the time of Domitian. Um, it's a little hard to read, not because it's blurry, but because it's in Greek. So unless you can read that, I'll be I'll be really impressed. But uh, here's the deal. In 82 AD, now remember, John gets sent to the island. He picked, he's arrested in 93 AD. We think he gets sent to the island in 95 AD. We don't know for sure. And then 96 AD, the mission is killed, and John gets released because of that. But he has a son, and he died in 82. Is that what I said? Yeah, 82. So what happens is he orders his son deified. He's a god. We're going to worship him. And so in 83 AD, this is the coin that he had minted to his son. On one side of it, you have Domitian, and that's kind of a picture of him. I don't know how accurate that is to him. But here you have his son. And again, it's a little blurry, so it's kind of tough to see, but this is his son. And he's sitting on a globe in the world. He's a ruler over the world, okay? So what he says, on one side you've got that Domitian is God. On the other side, you have his son, who is the son of God, on top of the planet, and it's indicating this world domination that this family has because they are dominion or descendants of the God. But what I want you to notice are these little guys right here. Do you know what those are? Stars. stars. You want to know how many there are? Seven. Seven stars in his right hand. Okay? Now remember, the first letter is written to Ephesus. Okay? Which is where John was from. That's where he was staying. He'd been running the churches in Asia Minor for 30 years at that point. And when Domitian makes his edict and all of that, and they start expanding, they set up the largest temple to Domitian in Ephesus, which is where the first letter is going. So, do you think they would have been familiar with this terminology, what was going on? Do you think they would have picked on what Jesus was doing? In other words, Jesus is taking the power away, saying, I am. I know, it's crazy, isn't it? Well, he's up. He's sitting up. It's a plate, and he's just sitting on the rim. Yes, the whole flat earth concept is messed up. Yes, sir? That same thing happened in Egypt when God sent the plagues. The ten plagues. Yep, those were not abstract. Those were spits in the face of all of their gods. He's saying, I have the authority. So you can trace that concept. And you can see it other places, all throughout Scripture. So, again, this isn't a, some new idea. This is kind of stuff that's going on. That's why we have to put this in its proper context. The seven stars and stuff like that, I watch people come up with a million different ideas of what these are. They're different constellations, and they're different this, and they're different that. And you get up into some wacky stuff. Now, that doesn't mean there's not elements to truth to all of that. But the bottom line is, is we can trace this idea, because that coin was well circulated at that time. 
Okay, so let's go back to the verse. So we see the, in his right hand, the seven stars. Now remember, the right hand is always the symbol of power, the symbol of authority. Okay, but you've got this sharp two-edged sword, and you good Bible scholars here are immediately going to think of two verses, right? For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and the joints of marrow, and is discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart of man. And of course, Ephesians 6, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's where our mind goes, right? Immediately where we think, that's where we always go. But that's not what he's talking about. Okay? Let's go to Isaiah 49. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me, and made me a tallest shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me. It is his, it's his decrees that will bring judgment of the world. Let's go one more. Isaiah 11. But with the righteous he shall judge the poor and decide the equity for the weak of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall lay the, slay the wicked. Now, here's the deal. You've got two verses in Isaiah talking about judgment, and you get this idea of the mouth. Now, our mind immediately goes, that sword in his mouth is the word of God like this. That's not untrue, because this same word of God brings judgment in the end time. So I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm saying this is not um, allegorical to that as much as it is here. It was prophetic that this is going to happen, because Jesus did not bring that judgment on the world while he was on the earth. It's coming later. You're watching this take place. That sharp two-edged sword, remember, is the most feared sword in the Roman Empire. They had a curl on it. I should have got a picture of it, but both sides were sharpened. They would use it, they decapitate people because, it, you know, there's all these other types of swords. Remember, when we talked about the armor of God, we did that series, and we went through all of those things in detail of what they were, what they looked like, I showed you guys pictures. But here, I mean, it had this curve on it. When they stuck it in, it would grab the entrails of the man. It was designed to get through the different armors. They could get around them with that curve on it, and they would behead people with it. I mean, it's a sick weapon. But he's getting ready to speak to the seven churches specifically. Right? That's what he's getting ready to do. He's going to bring judgment upon them because he's going to tell them the good and the bad. Now, not the I'm about to drop the hammer on you kind of judgment. He's just he's bringing some condemnation on this because God loves his church. It would be outside of his character to obliterate his church like that. But he's speaking to the world at hand. Now, the word sharp here, this is why we know this isn't specifically talking about the sword like we think of. It comes from the word oxus, O-X-U-S. And it refers to a sour wine, a vinegar, something bitter. It was a medical solution. They used a lot of times for anesthesia, things like that, for people who are in extreme pain. This is the same word that was used for the solution that was given to Jesus while he was hanging on the cross. Remember they stuck that up there? So rarely is this translated sharp in the New Testament. Rarely. But the reason it probably got translated this way is because it's a connection with the sword. So, the bottom line, he's getting ready to let the church know what they need to face. Because there was compromise in the church, and you're going to see that in, in all but two of them. All but two of them, he brings some sort of condemnation. This was a disease that was running rampant, and Jesus is going to remove it before it gets worse. It's for the good of the church. You guys see how all of those things kind of play together, what's happening here. Okay? Any questions, comments about that? No. Uh, let's look at the last part there. The sun shining in its strength. That's what his countenance was. It's this intense light that is shining 
all around him. We've seen this before. Matthew 17, verse 1. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. This is the transfiguration of Christ. Again, as white as the light is referring to the brightness. You've seen this a few other times throughout Scripture, but it is something supernatural that's going on. Okay, let's go to verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. Okay? Now, that word saw is horeo, H-O-R-A-O. This means recognize, to grasp, to perceive. So when it says, when I saw him, it means when I recognize him or when I realize it's him and all the things that were going on. Because what were the things he saw? Okay? When he turned around, he saw the seven lampstands. He sees the Christ, that Christ is among those lampstands. He sees the garment that Jesus is wearing. He sees the golden belt around Jesus Christ. He's describing all of this stuff. He sees uh, light that's coming from Christ. He sees Jesus' eyes were like fire, his feet were as brass. Then he hears the, the voice of Christ, and he's put in that hand. Then he sees the seven stars in his right hand. He sees the sword that's in Jesus' mouth. And here at this point, the eleventh thing is he is putting it all together. When he recognized Jesus, with all that was going on, he fell at his feet as dead. Now, there are several examples of this in Scripture, of people that are overwhelmed by the glory of God. And John's going to go through this again in chapter 19. He's going to fall another time underneath the power of God. But there is a fourfold pattern that is in the book of Daniel in chapter 10, verses 8 through 20. I'm going to give you the pattern. We're not going to read all the verses for time's sake. But basically, a prophet, number one, observes the vision. Oh, i got this up here for you. Let me put it up. Observes the vision. <coughs> he falls on his face. Now, this can be done mechanically, like in a prostrate manner in the sign of worship. It can also be something where they fall underneath the power of God. Um, then they are strengthened by a heavenly being, because in this case it was an angel, but they put their hand on them or whatnot, and say, do not be afraid. You hear that a lot. And then, of course, they receive further revelation from that person. I got a typo there. My apologies for that. But this, too, is a prophetic event. Now, again, the Jewish people, the people that were reading this, would have picked up on that trend in Daniel. But what John is doing in writing the way that he is doing this is that he is making connection to the propheticness of this book and comparing to other widely accepted prophetic books. Because you can just write something, but that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> now what I love is the part where it says, do not be afraid or do not fear. Because if you ever, every time you read that in scripture, it's usually something following that's going to be pretty scary. Right? Usually. Now, the first and the last, as we said, this is a title of Christ. This is one of those things that I write down when I see it. I always write it down because I like to make lists like that because then I can follow along. Later on, I see that, it's like, oh, I know what that is. Whether it's Christ or whatever. When I start putting the symbolism together of where that's going, that's what I like to do. Now, uh, it's also the first and last of talking about Jesus' pre-existence. And if we have time later, which we probably won't, I'll show you a, a way of overcoming a Jehovah's Witness. Yes, ma'am. Uh, when he said these right hand, wasn't he carrying the seven stars with his right hand also? Close his head. He didn't want to drop him. <laughs> the right hand, in his right hand, the problem is, is that when you see the right hand, it's a symbol of authority. So he's saying, I have these in my grasp. I don't believe that he saw them literally in his hand, you know, because he was in the midst of the lampstand and things like that. I don't know for sure on that. But remember, he's seeing a vision. 
um, the seven stars or the seven angels, right? So it's under his authority, it's under his grasp. So I don't know that it's necessarily he's holding them right there like that, you know. Because I don't think he just tossed them aside and then, okay, let me do this. But the right hand, you know, when the father blessed the son, the, uh, the firstborn, for the inheritance, it was always the right hand. The left hand went to the second son. Okay? Do you have something to add? You were doing one of these. Oh, okay. I thought you really had a question. Okay. Okay. Now, if, do you guys still have this seven thing? That I gave you? Mm -hmm. This here? Okay. Because on here, if you need another, I got some more up here. But, let's see. On the back, I see it's kind of more subtle sevens. It's the first thing here. It says seven features. That's what these are. These are the seven features that are listed of Jesus. His hair and his head, and I, I put the connection now. His eyes, the flame of fire. Okay? Again, more connect his feet, the voice, the right hand, the mouth. And all the different things that the mouth does. And of course, his countenance was like the sun. And I'm giving you a bunch of scriptures to that um, going along with that so you guys can see that. Now, if you guys want to read those down, I'll wait a second or I can put it up again when we get all done. And then you can write it down then, whatever you want to do. Can we continue? Okay. Okay. Let's go to verse 18. It says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and of death. Now, he describes his life, right? I lived, and I was dead. He lived on earth, he died. But I'm alive forevermore, referring to his resurrection, right? So he described the things that were and are, okay? But I have the keys of Hades and death. Now, we've got to put this, again, in the mindset of a first century person. Because we don't think like they do. But it's the same thing as that if somebody's given the key of the city. First of all, that key doesn't literally unlock anything. It's symbolic, right? It's an authority of the city. In the Old Testament and other Jewish literature, besides just that, the gates of Hades always refer to the realm of the dead. We think hell, but we've got so many misnomers on what hell actually is. Just think the realm of the dead. Okay, so It can be used to just speak of the grave. It doesn't have to be fiery hell like we always think. Okay? But whoever held the keys in a royal household held a position of great authority. What did Jesus tell Peter in Matthew 16? I give you the gates, or the keys to the kingdom. You know, there's a reason for that. Now, there were gate keys, the gates that entered in to the, you know, the palace or whatever place it may be. Now, these gates were huge, therefore these keys were huge. They'd be massive. And they'd be, uh, they would put them around, and sometimes they'd carry them like on a sash or around the waist. I mean, you ever seen the, like, the janitor at the school with the, the big ring of keys? I think that times 10. Like, these things are huge. Okay. But the thing is with this key is that one of the things that it was used for was to keep people out by locking the gate. But the adverse side of that is it was also used to keep people in. So the possessor of the key had the authority to open and close the gate. Now, who has the keys to Hades and death? Jesus does. He now has that authority over death, something that he didn't have before. He has authority over them. So this is going to give great hope to the believers because they're facing intense persecution. At this time point, when this is going on in the Roman world, the Christians, especially in Asia Minor, are facing extremely intense persecution. So he's giving them hope. It's like, I have the keys to hell. You're with me. You're good. You know, that's what this is doing. So we get out of verse 18. So we finish up that, the vision of the risen Christ. Now we're going to get in the outline of the book. It's one verse, but he gives us a quick outline. Okay? Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the thing which will take place after this. 
Okay? It's a past, present, future tense. I showed you guys how that works. But what did he just see? What did he see? Risen Christ. Saw Jesus. Now, what are the things that are that are currently going on? Seven churches, chapter 2 and 3. Okay? The things that will be are verses chapters 4 through 22. Right? Those are the things that come. So, in chapters 2 and 3, that's where we're still at because chapter 4, things start getting a little lame. Alright? So you see, that's it. So this is an outline of the entire book. You got the things that you did see, you got the things that are, and you got the things to come. Quick outline of the entire book. So then, he kind of lays this out as the prep for the next two chapters. Okay? And this is where it gets intrigued. The mystery of the seven stars, this is verse 20, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars and the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So, this makes it real easy to figure out what those were earlier, because Jesus told us, right? So the symbolism is taken away. We don't have to go and hunt for it, figure out what he's talking about. He tells them what it is. Now that word mystery comes from the word of mysterion. M-Y-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. I didn't make a start for that. The only other place that that word shows up is in the book of Daniel. Again, making a connection back to the book. Now, the seven lampstands are the seven champions. Churches, right? That's pretty obvious. That's not any big deal. We can get into a whole bunch of stuff on that, but we'll get on to that later. The part that I want to focus on are these seven angels. Because essentially, there are four views. And I'm going to hammer the last one. Okay? The first view is that these are messengers, these seven angels are messengers that are bearing a scroll to the church. They're basically um, delivering them. They're taking the scrolls. And so he's giving them direction because he's writing directly to them. You'll see that in a minute. Now, this is possible, but it's not likely. And the reason it's not likely is because you know how long it would take John to make seven copies of this book by hand? And it's got to be perfect. It'd take a while. So that's not very likely. It's likely one book that made its way around and copies were made as time went on. But so the second one is that these are the guardian angels of the church, the congregations themselves. That's one of the, the, the beliefs. Okay. The other part, another one, is that this might represent some sort of angelic being, this heavenly counterpart to an earthly reality. So heavenly lampstand represents uh, the churches. Heavenly stars simply represent angels. There's not a specific connection to the churches, things like that. But there's a problem with that. Okay. The fourth view, and this is somewhat of a minority view, but I think it's, it makes a heck of a lot of sense to me, is that uh, the word angels here comes from the Greek word angelos, A-N-G-E-L-O-S. It's often translated angels, often. But it also stand, it means messengers. Let me give you some times it's used like this in the New Testament. Luke 7, 24, James 2, 25. Matthew 11.10, Mark 1.2, Luke 9.52. Want me to go through that again? Yeah. Okay. Luke 7.24, James 2.25, Matthew 11.10, Mark 1.2, Luke 9.52. We get it all or need to do it one more time? Okay. Yeah. Now here's the thing. Are we good? It's, it's what he said. Now, in every one of those examples, that's a human messenger. Okay? In Revelation 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, To the angel 
of the church of Ephesus write? What did Jesus tell John to write to? Tell him to write to the angel. So the letter to the church at Ephesus is written to the angel. Now, he's then going to tell the angel of the good things that they're doing. He's going to tell them of the bad things that they're doing. And he tells them that they need to repent. But it's written to the angel. Now, here's the thing. Well, hold on, I'm getting there. Let me land this plane, Mark. Stroke your beard. <laughs> There's never a command given to an angel to repent, ever. There are angels that probably should have repented. They didn't in Genesis 6 and other places, but they didn't. And nowhere in the New Testament does it speak of an angel as being the head of the church. Ever. Their ministry is failed. Right? Did angel the church, angel the church? Why is John writing to that? Look what he says here, Psalm 103, 20. Bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Does God need John to write a letter to get a message to an angel? He does not. Okay? There's no example of this ever happening. This is a letter bringing correction. There's no example of this ever happening in Scripture. Now, this word messenger, it refers... Uh, the messenger that would be over the church of Ephesus and all the other churches. Now, who is the messenger that would be over the churches? Each individual church. Think about it for a minute. Bishop? What? Bishop. Bishop, what would the term that we would use today? Pastor. pastor. The pastor. Mm -hmm. Yes, on that? Even uh, if the pastor was on the way to <laughs> well, it would certainly be a, a first, that, that's for sure. Now, now look at this. Let me show you this in, in Young's literal translation. This is an old translation. The secret of the seven stars that thou hast seen upon my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are messengers of the seven assemblies, and the seven lampstands that thou hast seen are the seven assemblies. If this is the pastor, as I, you know, suspect, if Jesus is following a pattern of authority that he has set up in these local churches. Because it's pastors, God-given responsibilities to deliver the divine message that God gives them. And those churches are the congregation what are underneath his oversight. And he has to answer to God for everything that goes through them. And so if this is, they, you know, what I am suggesting is that these are human messengers, would be what we would call the pastors, and that he is giving these things to them specifically the word of God coming to the pastor, the pastor delivering that word. Why wouldn't he just use the word that we see in other places of the New Testament that the church would have been familiar with? Overseers, elders. They pastors, may have standards. It's us that's not. Because they use several words. Why didn't they say bishop stuff? It's possible that they didn't have a direct pastor, pastor like a head guy, but several. So it could be messengers like whoever's giving up reading the text. Because that's the whole point. Blessed is he who reads and who hears. Somebody's reading that message in the congregation. So why he didn't use that word, I don't know. And I am not precluding that it couldn't be an angelic being. But when you put all those things together, it sure doesn't make much sense to me. So, uh, again, this is a minority view, but most of the time people don't dig into this stuff that deep. So I just find it interesting. Yes, ma'am. And also, how many angels did he ever write to? In the Old Testament or the New Testament. How many angels do they have a right to? I don't think so. I don't 
don't know. Did you give a number? I don't think you give a number. Yeah. Like, how can you write to an angel? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry. I said we have a right to. Like, how many do we get? No, no, no. I'm like, I don't know. I hope a bunch, because you're talking to the guy that pushed the trampoline over against the house so I could jump off the roof and land on the sea of high again. I need as many angels as I can get. So it uh, did not end well and hurt a lot. So, But, but. Right. Yeah, so I think you guys can at least see it again. Uh, you know, is it specifically the pastor? Is there something deeper going on there maybe that we're missing? Possibly. But I, I certainly don't think you can make a very good case based on that interpretation of it being an angelic being. It's got to be a human messenger of some sort. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Well, you know, uh, the Bible does mention that we have guardian angels. Yep. So back in those days, you know, they probably wouldn't have a specific pastor as they did now in the Bible and the church. Mm -hmm. But they had, uh, they had old spirits. Yep. It was, a, it was a little different structure than what we see today. Some of them did would have an individual that kind of ran the show. Timothy is an example of that, but he's also an overseer of many churches. Um, they would set up, they would call them bishops a lot of times and things like that. Um, so it could be more than one. It could be, you know, it could be the guys reading the text. But the bottom line is, is that why would he have John write a letter to the angel when the angel takes his order from God? It just doesn't make sense when you put it in that perspective. Yes. Well, in a way, it kind of does, though, because people who who preached the gospel, mm -hmm. which would have been what they're doing, those are all messages delivered to them from mm -hmm. God, sure. what they're called to preach about yep. in the church. So that makes them a messenger of God's word. Oh, absolutely. So to me, it kind of ties in, you know, and then you think about all, the, you know, it makes sense that an angel would also, the word would be, you know, correspond with messenger because you think about um, when Mary was told, when anybody's told anything from God in the Old Testament, it's always an angel that Right, absolutely. Usually it's an angel or sometimes it's God directing, but but absolutely. In this case, though, he's telling John to write that message to that angel. And that's the, that's where the angelic idea of that coming, that John is writing a letter so that Gabriel can read it. Just doesn't make sense. Gabriel's just an example. Maybe it's wrong. I don't know. John and Tyler don't work. Any of the Ninja Turtles, I don't know. Unless John's telling the Ninja Turtles. You know you have a question? No, I'm just, uh, it just said the seven stars representing their angels who are assigned each to a church to assist in spiritual warfare, or it can refer to the pastors of this church. Okay, there you go. There you go. But again, when we look at it, could refer to the angels, and then you see the very next part. Remember, these are man-made distinctions here. The chapters and verses were put in, so we just have reference points. This would have been a continuous flow in 11. So that's where we make those distinctions. So again, whether it's specifically the pastor or the overseer or some, the bottom line is it's very likely a human person, almost 99% certain. So that changes things when we look into the next few chapters.